first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Proteus. Proteus is a science fiction disaster story created by Joshua Bodden and Fletcher Legg through their company, Short Tail Sounds. The Proteus is a high-tech submarine on a deep-sea research mission when it suffers a hull breach. With the crew separated and the sub sinking, the survivors have little time to save themselves or the life-saving research they've done. Proteus is a self-contained story told over four episodes with an international cast. The first episode, Down and Out, introduces us to the crew of the Proteus and its mission right before disaster strikes. I spoke to Joshua and Fletcher remotely from their homes in Bristol. Why don't each of you tell me a little bit about yourselves as an artist and a creator and what your background is? So my name is Fletcher Legg. I am a trained actor. The way we got into creating short tail sounds and sort of launching into this sort of work was... I had a bit of a creative itch that wasn't really being scratched as an actor trying to find work is not necessarily always the easiest thing to do. So mm, yeah, we kind of just thought, Hey, why don't we create our own? And sort of along the way, I've sort of found other itches that I've been able to scratch with the process of working within short tail sounds. So, which has just been great to be honest. How did you come to become an actor? Were you always an artistic person? Yeah, I think so. I got an interest in it sort of towards the end of our secondary sort of high school years. We put on like school plays and stuff. It just sort of really seemed to click. I was cast as Duty in Greece, which was one of the lesser known T-Birds, but I, I fulfilled <laughs> the role to my to the best of my ability. And um was also challenged to play guitar as well, which is another passion of mine now, which is... Um, she does very well. Thank nice. you very much. Nice. I'm very, very grateful for that. It was, you're going to be playing four chords in this musical. And it's like, huh, I don't play guitar. <laughs> uh, Fletcher, did you go to uni to study theater and performance? I did, yes. So I went to um, the University of Falmouth, which is in Cornwall. Yeah, I studied a BA honors in acting, did three years there. And since then, I think I can talk about it now because they've released a trailer. I'm going to do it. But I, I, was a, I was actually, a, I, I've done extras work and things, um, but I was actually a droid in Star Wars, in a Star Wars TV series recently. Which no! Is, that's awesome. Yeah, that was like the coolest gig I've, I've ever had for doing something like that. It was for about a week or two of filming, and um, I ended up being a substitute teacher droid in, um, in an upcoming series. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Really you nice. know what Fletcher might not say is that this droid has a, has a tops card. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, discovered yeah. that there is a tops card for the character that Fletcher's going to be playing. Yeah, it was, a, and <laughs> it it was so like, cool. I have one. I had to get one, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, congratulations. You are now officially famous. Well, thank you thanks so much. <laughs> so, uh, Joshua, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background as an artist? I'm a writer. I try and write various different things. I'm also a director at Short Tail Sounds, a sound designer, which I do on a freelance basis as well with other things. And I work as an editor assistant at Silverback Films. I have a bit of a tendency to gravitate towards sort of incredible stories that serve as escapism. As a kid, I kind of grew up watching Star Wars 
Indiana Jones, Doctor Who, and they've definitely informed the kind of stories that I want to tell now. My bread and butter as a storyteller is kind of anything that involves original characters with interesting story arcs, you know, learning about the world through those stories, and also just being taken on an incredibly fun, exciting ride. To interject, Josh has the most incredible collection of Blu-rays. Um, <laughs> he's actually built his own bookshelf to house all of them. Nice. <laughs> How did you come to be a film and TV and writer and sound designer and all this? Weirdly, I have a bizarre story in that I once, when I was very young, skipped a day of school because okay. I'd seen a DVD trailer for uh, the Jurassic Park box set. And I might have skipped the day of school by being, you know, ill. <laughs> I was looked after by my grandmother and she said, are you ill? And I went, um... She was no. complicit in this. In yeah, this she, she was. She's <laughs> going to love this when she hears it. And uh, we went shopping. I said, there's one thing that I'm really desperate to get. And it was a Jurassic Park box set. And Excellent. But then there was this thing on there. There was a bonus disc. That kind of really opened the world up to there are people who make these movies. And it's mm. not just stories that kind of get filmed and that's that they're released. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that really fascinated me. I remember the Lord of the Rings box sets, the DVDs oh, came yeah. with these appendices extras, which were five, six hours long per movie. And you just got right. to go through this whole process. And I just thought it was incredible. And then it also just opened the world to maybe that's something that I could do. Yeah. And then I suppose in the 10 years after that, as a teenager, was kind of just trying to expand my palette, watching as much stuff as I could for different genres. And mm. I guess over that journey of watching and consuming different stories. I just knew 100% that was what I wanted to do. It's so interesting because like, for you to have such a like, formative experience that you can remember so vividly yeah. is so, so cool. Like, it really shows that like, it, it really was, was like a calling. Weirdly, my gran is obviously key to this journey because I remember distinctly being at her house the first time I watched episode four and had the trench run sequence. And I oh. just remember being in there and just being astounded. like. This is insane. This is uh, amazing. Right. Yeah. So thanks, Graham. So let me ask you, you're both clearly film buffs. You both love film and television. How yeah. did you end up doing audio drama? So we've known each other a long time. I think it's about 10 or 11 years now. Yeah. Because we used to sit next to each other in an English class mm -hmm. and just talk about films that were coming out, basically. I think it was Prometheus um, and Skyfall, yes, if I yeah. remember correctly. Yeah, it actually was, yeah. <laughs> We've been good friends since, and we've collaborated on different projects of varying successes over the years. Yeah. Just like out of interest, just to see like what we can create. Josh was sort of writing loads and loads of scripts, and you, you've got like stuff in the, in the tank for like yeah. written feature stuff, TV sort of ideas and stuff like that. And it's like, it's great to put them onto paper, but I want to create them. Yeah. <laughs> and especially at the time when we created and launched Short Tail Sounds, which was the beginning of March last year, the yep. UK was in its third national lockdown. Yeah. So for us, it was like, oh, we can't get out and even make like short film versions of this. Like, so why don't we make something that's achievable with a low budget, but you can still have all of those like elements of the, the wide, expansive blockbusting sort of soundscapes Yeah, with the way that the world was functioning. We can connect with anybody. Josh also went to the same university. You did film and television. Film and television. Yeah. Yeah. Which with a, with a sort of quite a strong focus on sound design. And I've got the sort of acting side of things and. We've always had an interest in writing stuff together. So I think that's kind of how it's, it's a It's a funny journey how we actually went specifically to audio drama. 
when the lockdown started, we'd written a scene that was kind of like a monologue piece that was designed to be a short film. I remember you, you did a recording of it, Fletcher, and yes, yeah, it, it sounded great. And then just by instinct, wanted to put a few sound effects with it and kind of time stuff and put uh, like sort of ambience in the background. And, and I think that really interested us because it totally worked in audio form. It gave it that visual aspect, became so much more accessible. It's like we can build the sounds and then yeah, your, and your imagination can do the rest. We were going to write a five minute scene about yeah. a man yeah. trapped in a submarine just through the process of expanding the story and just, you know, spitballing ideas of, well, what would they be doing down there? And who might these characters be? It just spiralled into this much <laughs> yeah. larger story. So our five minutes before we knew it became an 80 page script. It was like the submarine got bigger, the cast got bigger, and we were like, oh, we're making a series now, like a small mini series. I'm not surprised to hear that you both are film buffs. You know, when I was listening to Proteus, I got hints of like the disaster films of the 70s, like Poseidon Adventure or Towering Mm -hmm. Inferno, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I also got little threads from, there were some underwater sci-fi movies that all came out around the same time. Uh, This is The Abyss. Yeah, um, yeah. And Deep Star Six. Were you drawing inspiration from these kinds of films? We tried to write the first draft without going back and trying to take too much inspiration. I mean, obviously, there's some things that kind of just feed into the project. For me, one of the, the biggest parallels was, say, Apollo 13 or mm-hmm. First mm-hmm. Man. And it, it's right. funny because I had watched First Man probably when we were in our third draft. And there's, yeah. there's a sequence in Third Man, which is entirely sound based almost where Neil Armstrong is spiraling in space and he has to get it under control. And the sound of the sequence is so immersive and terrifying. Mm. You want to feel everything that the characters are feeling. Mm-hmm. And maybe the best way to do that is, you know, I guess if an audience member sat, listened to the story, shut their eyes, if they felt like they were in that world. And I don't know, Keith, if, if when you're working on a project, do you try to avoid taking inspiration or kind of, you know, fear of, imbuing too many elements of that thing into your own show or do you do you kind of embrace yeah it's such a tricky line isn't it well i don't think you can avoid the things that you have experienced in your life coming through in your choices because they set the pattern for your artistic creativity but Mm. i always like the saying originality is not what you do it's how you do it yeah my show the book of constellations is about an alien from outer space who is trying to make his way on earth and there have been you know dozens of films along those lines right Mm -hmm. so my my idea is that hopefully i am doing this in a way that is unique that so that while the story might have some of the same kind of elements and if you look at it, you can certainly see that Starman is in there and E.T. is in there, you know, yep. and things like that. But yeah. but hopefully it's a different take on it that comes out of other things that I have experienced in my life. And the creativity comes from that. It's shaking everything up and coming out with something and hopefully that it's something new because it's from me as opposed to someone else. Yeah, I, I think a lot of authors, creators in general, worry about being original and I, yeah. I think you can't be. I, I think every story's yeah. been told already. Yeah, It's all about your perspective. So the newness that you bring is your approach, your artistic choices, and your perspective. And that's enough. Even if you draw upon your inspirations, your lived experience is going to inform what you actually create. I think both in Proteus and the story that we're writing now, it's funny because I can hear our voice in all the scripts. Mm. Definitely, yeah. Like this, yeah. it's definitely us. And there's... There's, there's a certain amount of 
British humour in there that we sure. just can't seem to avoid and occasionally <laughs> yeah. have to write out. But I, I also find it really encouraging, to be honest, because it doesn't feel like we're just doing an imitation of something else. It does feel yeah. genuinely ours. Why don't you tell me about Proteus in your own words? I'm really curious as to what you think about when you think about this story. Sort of, I think it was possibly informed by the circumstances we were living yeah. in directly at that moment as well. Maybe unconsciously, we had written a show where people are stuck inside an isolated space, hmm. but we also yeah. wrote that during a national lockdown. Yeah. So right. it was kind of like maybe that was more informing on the work than we maybe realised. I think it was definitely like a case of art imitating reality. It's definitely prominent mm. in the story, both intentionally and unintentionally. We said about being in the lockdown, and I think it had been a year by that point. So, you know, we'd had that feeling of being under restrictions for a while. And I think if you listen to Proteus through that lens of context, you can very easily see like the parallels, yeah. the circumstances of being trapped in, not knowing when you might see others again. It's, it's even actually to the groups communicating with each other via the comms. In, yeah, in the, in definitely, the show. definitely. Oh, right. Because you would have to hang out with your friends remotely, right? Yeah. Or yeah. Very, very few of the characters actually are with each other visibly. They split up pretty quickly. The engineering crew goes down to engineering. There's a party going on yeah. yep. down in the labs. And then the captain is up on the bridge. So a lot of chatter over comms. So the, the story itself is about a futuristic submarine, the Proteus who is on a deep sea exploration mission looking for something called the cry, which is never fully explained, but I do get the sense there's some sort of living creature. Yeah, um, we, yeah. We, we, we quite like the ambiguity around them, I think. Carefully. Incision at 50%. Okay. Okay, we're nearly there. All good? Yes, that's it, 90%. Done. Okay, team. I'm removing the material. Shit. I don't believe it. A shoal of cry. My God. They're beautiful. Man, you ever heard a sound like that? That, my boy, is the sound of hope. Heavenly. We have a job to do, team. Right, right. They're a creature that kind of lives very deep in the sort of bedrock of the ocean. They're incredibly hard to find, but they do possess this regenerative property and that if you could extract it, you could potentially cure illnesses that might be terminal and save lives. So it's, it's really is a research mission that's kind of very optimistic. They're down there, they're searching for the cry, and then they have some sort of mechanical problem. There's a hull breach. Things rapidly start falling apart. Yeah. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is that the primary antagonist here is not a person, but rather the environment. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm curious as to why you wanted to approach your storytelling from that perspective. I suppose having it as a sort of environmental consequence is sort of like, it's a known thing, I suppose, like with it being a sort of natural unavoidable disaster the audience are maybe clued up on on what's happening because we had these characters we wanted to have these um we felt that i think it would have more impact if everybody on board seemed really nice and then this happens to them and you're like oh. i also think one of the benefits you have by the situation is sort of the antagonist and, and, and you experience it through being on the ship there is no way of reasoning with it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you, you can't talk your way out of it. It's going exactly. to happen. It's and that that therefore sort of frames the story through. Okay, this is the situation. How are we going to get out of it? This environmental pressure, this environmental antagonist, forces their characteristics to become yeah. more manifest. It drives them to act out on their baser natures. While you do set up this happy collaborating crew, they quickly fall apart in some cases when things get really bad. I, I, yeah, yeah, I think it was one of the interesting sort of dialogues we had early on with the story. It sort of dawned on us when we were reading it of just like, maybe everyone's a bit too nice. And I actually don't <laughs> think that would be the case because, you know, yeah. as, as terrible as it is, I think there may be opportunity in there for someone. With the stakes as high as they are, some of the decisions made by some characters are even a surprise to the group themselves. Well, now the mission's complete, we'll all separate. And that's fine, for the most part. I mean, Isabel's a blood relation of Jack Frost, and Takumi's a straight-up asshole. And you, you're all right, but you're as good as gone now, aren't you? What with... Big League MIT calling and whatnot. Ah, Kinney. Ugh, don't give me that soft bullshit. There's no need to fuss and put on the dramatics. I'll just miss you, is all. Ugh, now there's me being soft. Just make sure that you check in from time to time. All right? Aye, lassie. I can do that. I'd wish you good luck. But I think it's the others that are going to need it. No, 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 no. You you think Issy and Takumi will struggle out there in the cold? But they're diamond examples of what you'd want from a colleague. <laughs> Here he is. <laughs> oh, the big shot, Professor. Nah, 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 nah. It's, uh, it's well-deserved, boss. Thank you, Isabel. Ugh. I don't mean to pry, but... Any news on who might take the hot seats from you? No, nothing yet, I'm afraid. But as soon as the bigwigs and I have made our decision, you can be sure you'll be the first to know. Keep us in mind, eh, Doc? (laughs) As ever. Come take a whiff of this! You better not have dropped one. When the pressure is on, that's when you notice someone's true qualities. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have a pretty large cast and they're from all over the world. Yeah. So that, that was a, that real moment of collaboration. Uh, Chelsea Grace, who played Tamara Kinney. Yeah, she was from Scotland. Alan Winter, who played Takumi Okamizo. He was, he's from New York, isn't he, Josh? I believe so. Yeah. Jerry Schultz, who played Robert Linden. He was from the West Coast. So how did you coordinate with across all these different time zones? That was a that was a challenge. I had it never was, produced before as well, so that was a challenge. We just sort of managed to find a time. I think it was a very tight window as well. I think we had an hour and a half slot that worked for everybody. Cause, um, yeah, because we had people from stretching from lots of different places. Liz was from the States as well, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah. I think we all had different time zones. So I think, I think we were sort of contesting with getting four time zones to, to work. Mm. And fortunately, yeah. we managed to. And I'm sure someone probably had to yeah. climb out of bed at a very early hour and we apologize but it was it was amazing the whole series is four episodes so it's a self-contained story the total runtime is about an hour and 10 minutes or so i'd say right yeah tell me what thought process went into what you wanted to put into the first episode and why you made the choices that you did for that one i think one of the key things 
we wanted to achieve with the first episode was to try and have those relatable characters that people would invest their time with. We also wanted to have this incredibly immersive environment that people would buy into and be interested with the, uh, the mission. I guess our, our main goal was to, to have a, a situation that, that people would buy into the characters mm. and just as you hopefully start really being interested in them and the yeah. dynamics of the group, things go horribly wrong. Right. And mm. you will see how they kind of bounce back from that and respond to that. And hopefully that's the, the catch of the first episode. Is right. that- and you do spend a lot of time developing the characters. Um, yeah. I, I like that they're not just sitting around talking, but they're also in the middle of the mission. So that gives them yeah. some stakes. That gives them something to do. But you also spend a lot of time developing the world of the submarine, uh, and you do a lot of that with sound. Yeah. I do recognize that there is clearly a lot of work that you have put into the sound engineering for this show. Guys, tools down. We have got to go right now. Oh, I fucking knew it. Drop your gear. Get going. Now. What's happening? Oh, great. It's a fucking hole breach! Shit! Get clear! Come on, time to go! Go, 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 go! Guys! Watch out! I'm curious, what is your theory behind designing sound for audio drama? Tell me about what you think is important and why. It's an interesting one because I actually find it very different to mixing to picture. Mm -hmm. Because with picture, there are certain sound effects that you think will work and they just don't. For whatever reason, the brain doesn't seem to quite allow them, if that's the right way to phrase it. But with audio drama, there's definitely more flexibility and it's it's really fun because you have so many possibilities. There's a visual element that comes with it, and you don't think that the sound is appropriate for whatever that visual action is. Yeah. Right. But there is no visual element, so you can. Exactly. That's interesting. It's funny because I almost think sound for an audio drama is closer to reading a book in that the audience will populate the world how they perceive it. So it's almost like giving them the ingredients to put the recipe together themselves and with that you can kind of put more things in one of the things i liked about the sound in the show is that it is very immersive and i think you really do get that sense that you want to draw the audience member into the world almost like they're part of the crew is there a limit can you go too far yeah i think originally the end of the first episode has a very busy section Mm -hmm. and i think my instinct on the first one, just because I never mixed for an audio drama at that scale, was to just throw the kitchen sink at the sound mm. mix. And <laughs> I put everything into it. Did you use a kitchen sink? Um, <laughs> yes. There are many, many kitchen utensils used for foley. <laughs> it's one of those things I put so much into it, and it just didn't work. It was so busy that the actual emotional element to the story was gone. It just yeah. completely punctured the believability. And it was really hard to follow what was actually going on. It was, if anything, over-designed. I think that was probably mm. the point at which I went, okay, there are definitely limits. And weirdly, the more I sort of stripped it back to 
this sound effect and, and this sequence is crucial to the scene, but we'll still use a lot of elements and, and there's a ton of layers and recordings that go into it. Mm. But it's actually just knowing just the right amount and you can go right up to the edge. And as soon as you go past that, it just kills the scene. I think there is a fatigue, right, that sets in. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's that's one thing that we, we have learned is you need a moment of stillness. One of the best sequences actually mm. almost is one of the ones that uses the least amount of effects. There is a sequence in an air duct that was done with many kitchen i i'd got <laughs> cook I, I lined up a ton of cooking trays and crawled across the cooking oh, wow. trays and it sounds weirdly convincing but yeah. as i was doing it somebody came home at the time and <laughs> i was just in our lounge crawling over and there was just a moment where we just looked at each other no words were exchanged we just kind of like okay and then they just left and, and, not, and went not, out for a bit <laughs> it's not a phase mom I want to be a sound engineer. I remember some of the like la- like some of the best sort of clanging sound effects that I think I provided for Proteus were I just got a pizza tray again out of the kitchen, dropped it on the floor, and it went like brow, and I was like, wow. I think the thing to take away from this is if you want to be a sound designer, just just go in the kitchen, <laughs> just go <laughs> get a microphone, <laughs> grab the most random assortment of things in your house, and um, just bang them together. And that's the story of Proteus. There we go. That's how Proteus was made. <laughs> that's great. So I want to ask you both, what do you struggle with? The, the struggle, I think, was um, the emails, personally for me. I'd never done producing before. Josh was doing all the sound design, and naturally I was like, that's a really big job. Getting through that and finding a rhythm that worked with sort of just the working life as well. One thing that we have relaxed for our new project is deadlines. We are very ambitious. Yeah, and I think because we were sort of being taken along by the interest, the growth, we were like, right, we have to get this done by this date. Before we were far too um, sort of regimented on, well, we have to release it now. Sometimes that really puts some stresses on and also um, could have hindered potentially creating things in a better way. Sometimes you can spend too long overworking something. Yeah. And I think it's important to know when to kind of step away and say, I'm pushing a bit too hard to try and get this right. Right. We had a, probably a moment where just when we'd started mixing, it had been such an intense period for such a, a long time of writing, casting. And once once we'd got the recordings in and everything had gone really smoothly, it, it came to that point where we were about to mix. And I think we just needed a, a little break, to be honest. Yeah. And I yeah. think we almost didn't go to take that break to start with. And we, we almost went straight into mixing. Because I, I think it's pressure that we put on ourselves at that point to try and deliver this incredible thing and like you know you almost become obsessed with making this thing that's that's as good as it, it can be and and and, and you know you, you obviously want it to be as good as it can be but at the same time we, we'd maybe put the pressure so high ahead of actually mixing the thing that we just needed time away to kind of you know fall in love with the project all over again how do each of you measure success in your work when we were gaining traction and stuff it was exciting i think to to be like People are interested. People are taking note. But really, in hindsight, the real sort of best parts that have come from it are the connections. Yeah. Meeting with like-minded people, sharing and discussing. And, and I, th- I think just sort of like untapping your passion, talking about the things you love. That, that was so rewarding. And that, that really felt like the, the success of, of sharing your idea with people and then them contributing to it as well. It was like really the collaboration for me was like one of, the, one of my favorite aspects. I think it's easy as well to, to kind of obsess with numbers and, and how many people have listened to your show. But like the truth is that for me, I would rather that one person 
love the story than say 10,000 like it and listen to mm. it. Like the, those individuals who engage with you and it, it means things to you, that's the success. What lessons have you learned creating audio drama that you might want to share with people who are going to create their own? It's a marathon and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. It's a big undertaking. Especially if it's not, if it's not your full-time job, like there are so many hobbyist um, podcasters and people that produce audio dramas and stuff. It naturally isn't your first full-time job. So you have to get it done when you can, I think. But also enjoy it. It can, it will get stressful at points and you just have to know it's okay to like step back, give yourself a little break and not to allow yourself to kind of be overwhelmed by it and just to enjoy the process because you do it because it's fun and because you enjoy it. And it's this incredible thing. It's your story that you get to tell. I feel like my advice would be actually asking for advice. We've actually gained sort of a wealth of knowledge um, in just dropping into into people's messages, just asking for advice, sort of like, we've seen that you've done this. How did you go about doing it? It can really open up a, a discussion and you can learn things, you can share things. And um, I think it's just a, a real good way of, you know, getting a second opinion. Come on, it's more or less like 50 to 70% each time I make it. Give or take, it won't kill you. I certainly hope not. I'm not keen on spilling my guts on whatever this is. If you spent as much time sampling cry as you do this poison... We'd have been finished months ago. Where's the fun in that? <coughs> it sure tickles the old trout, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't doubt it. Hmm. What's that? Smooth sailing as ever. What the hell was that? Nothing, Kay. We must have just hit a current pocket. Or a pot of dolphins. Oh no! The captain must be on manual control again. That rogue begs the question, why would you want to use an efficient and responsive AI aboard a $90 million vessel? That's enough. Oh, come on. You know it's true. He's McAllister knows what he's doing. Hey, Professor. Where are you going? Off to spill your guts? Shh, hold on. Shh, shh. Whoa, he's a wreck. The sauce has really gotten to his head. I don't think so. Uh, Rob, is everything okay? Hmm. Fans of disaster films or survival stories will find plenty to like about Proteus. The stakes are high for the story's characters as they struggle amid the well-designed and immersive soundscape. You can listen to Proteus by searching for short tale sounds on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? 
How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.